2, Season 1, Episode 8 of Dog Eared Nightmares. I am LP Hernandez, and today I welcome my friend and fellow No Sleep podcast veteran, Gemma Amor. We discuss her epistolary novel released via Cemetery Gates Media earlier this year, The Once Yellow House. We also chat about our shared yearning for undiscovered places, breaking out of tropes, and the challenge of writing epistolary fiction. My guest today is Gemma Amore. She is the author of Dear Laura, Bram Stoker nominated. Last year's release was her first traditionally published novel, Full Immersion. She has multiple collections. She is a regular contributor to the No Sleep podcast. She does voice work and visual art and probably other stuff I'm not tracking. So I'm going to start this interview um, by reading my review of The Once Yellow House. That is the book we're here to discuss. The Once Yellow House is both a fascinating story and a reading experience told through audio transcripts, diary entries, and a personal favorite, letters to the editor. The story is given depth by footnotes likely to send a reader down a Wikipedia rabbit hole from which they will emerge with a deeper knowledge of obscure European painters and the color yellow. The Once Yellow House was the centerpiece of an overnight cult fixated on Thomas, known by his followers as the great God Thomas. Imagine your completely normal, outside of the abuse, spouse has secretly cultivated a following of thousands, espousing cherry-picked religious doctrine without your knowledge. He then buys a house well past the tipping point of submitting to nature, also behind your back. Kate was a member of the cult searching for answers from one of the few to survive the massacre. That would be the end of the cult known as the retinue. Hope, as a fellow survivor and wife of the great god Thomas, is the reclusive target of her search. Upon meeting, the story is revealed via audio transcripts of their conversation interspersed with Hope's diary entries. Thomas's metamorphosis from man to God is endlessly enjoyable. There is no limit to Amor's talent in describing the various manifestations. The visuals are disgusting, but in a way that will leave a smile on your face. Hope guesses at, at the how and why without setting on a singular ex- settling, excuse me, on a singular explanation. The story benefits from this ambiguity. The best stories get you thinking, planting seeds of possibility and leaving you to tend the garden to see what grows. The Once Yellow House is the perfect book to pull you out of a reading rut if you find yourself in one. It's different, it's fun. And like when you're thinking of buying a new car, you will notice that model everywhere. You will notice yellow and triangles, but mostly yellow. That's the review. So welcome, Gemma. Hi, nice nice to, uh, I don't really know what to say after that glowing review. That's, <laughs> we're job done, I can go home now. <laughs> yeah, I. I uh, sincerely enjoyed it. I think um, I had read a couple of books that um, maybe likely to be found in a bookstore type books that got me a little burned out because you go into it thinking this is kind of already vetted, like this is through a, a big publisher, so it has to be good. And then you find yourself kind of um, unimpressed. And so I picked up The Once Yellow House. I got one of the few full color versions and it was so fun, uh, such a, a unique reading experience. The the transcripts, the um, the little footnotes, which I'm going to ask you about, because that it really felt like a labor of love. Love, excuse me. Okay, so Gemma, um, kind of established your a, a bit of your career your career to this point, uh, and I'm very curious to know what your relationship to horror is. Are you a lifelong consumer? 
Were there some formative books or movies, etc.? Um, yes, in a nutshell. Um, I have, um, I came to um, kind of genre fiction as a teenager um, and a young, I guess a young reader, very much through the fantasy world. Um, I consumed a lot of big fantasy sagas when I was younger. Um, I used to have a library card and I was the, the kid who was in the library every day, checking out as many books as she could and exchanging them on a kind of uh, almost uh, daily basis. And I read an awful lot of um, Anne McCaffrey books and Tad Williams books and Robert Jordan books and the Wheel of Time series. And there was also an amazing uh, imprint at the time called Point Fantasy. Um, and they used to publish Tamora Pierce, who had a lovely kind of series of books, uh, one of one of which was a trilogy, I think, or quadrology, the Wild Magic books. And from there, I kind of leapfrogged over into the Point Horror series, which um, was a big deal over here when I was a teenager in the 90s. And uh, it was, a, they were a kind of series of very pulpy, very R.L. Stein um, style, kind of short, punchy horror novels. Um, people like uh, Richie Tankersley Cusick, I think her name was, um, and just, you know, things like The Babysitter and Halloween, and they had these wonderful, vibrant kind of garish covers, and I was really enamoured with those um, as a young reader. When I got older, I went off to university and I studied uh, the classics, and I, I got kind of into things like Charlotte Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper and I read um, Shelley and I, you know, Angela Carter was introduced to me at that age and that was very formative experience because she sort of skirts, she, she does write what you would class as horror, but it was is very blended with kind of uh, irreverent retellings of fairy tales and it was probably what you would call or class more literary horror, which I hate as a term, but it gets bandied around a lot. Um, and then later on in life, I kind of came across Stephen King and I started reading, uh, I started with Cujo, um, which I found in a bookshop in India when I was traveling in my kind of early 20s. So, yeah, I've I've um, been, I guess, a, a long term consumer of horror. Um, but one of the things that I have been forgetting to kind of cite as a reference and as a major influence whenever I answer this question in podcasts is uh, the impact that the X-Files had on me um, when I was a young person as well. And again, that was the, it was the 90s. And the X-Files was huge back then when I was a kind of young person, <laughs> which makes me sound ancient, but like, I feel ancient today. Um, and it was, it was a cultural, it was a zeitgeist, you know, it was a cultural phenomenon. It was a huge movement. The soundtrack was everywhere. Um, the merchandise was everywhere. Like the imagery was so strong. And and I'm rewatching a lot of those episodes now on Disney Plus, and and I I had forgotten how kind of hardcore they were in terms of some of the themes and 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 you, to define it as horror, you know, like the episodes, the standalone episodes rather than the overarching kind of alien um, narrative which goes throughout each series. There are some banging horror episodes in the kind of first four or five series of the X Files, which really left an impact on me. Um, and yeah, and it's it's been really fun rewatching them as as an adult uh, rather than a young adult, and realizing how much of my writing is based around 
a series of events that happen all in the same universe, very much like the X-Files. It's kind of accepted that weird shit happens all over the world or all over America. And that's okay. And it's never really explained to the full degree of like, this is exactly why this has happened. This is why this man can summon lightning to burn somebody from the inside out. It's never really explained. And I, I found that very appealing concept. And I think what I've done subconsciously is a very similar thing with a lot of my books now, where I've kind of built this weird universe of odd interconnected, but not kind of supernatural events. And I have to, I have to cite X-Files, I think is probably a massive reason for that. So yeah. Does it hold up? It does hold up. Some of the episodes are a bit like, eh, like a lot of stuff back then, you know, there's uh, perhaps not politically correct in, mm. in many instances. Um, but there are many, many episodes that are just still really, really fucking creepy and just so well done, well written, well acted. The, the special effects are on point as well. And it's very practical effects heavy, which I love. Um, yeah, it definitely holds up. So we've established where your interest in horror came from. Uh, why did you decide to start creating it? Was there a perspective maybe you saw um, that something that didn't exist in the world, something you could tap into? I don't think it was that conscious a thought process, really. Um, like I've never set out to, well, certainly not when I started writing. I didn't set out on a kind of any mission or crusade to fill any perceived gaps because I don't think I knew enough about the genre then anyway um I'm still very much sort of dipped in and out of horror but I mean I've been a writer all of my life um I've been drawn to magic and mysticism and mysteries and all of that good stuff all of my life again perhaps coming from the fantasy background and um and I love science fiction too and you know devoured a lot of Asimov when I was younger and um I think I've always been very like Arthur C. Clarke's books were always a big thing for me, the kind of unexplained mystery style books. I've always been very drawn to the unexplained. And in my view, I don't think I set out to sort of start being a horror writer. I think I just naturally gravitated towards things that fit into the horror genre in terms of kind of magical powers or unexplained things or you know monsters and and monsters are a big one for me I'm, I'm obsessed with this this idea of monsters or human monsters or supernatural beings um and and um, you know perhaps some of the things I write cross over more into sort of dark fantasy I, I tend to try not to be pigeonholed with things like that but I just I found a home in the horror community not long after I started writing. I kind of was very active on Twitter and I began to find this wonderful online community of other people who were writing stories like me. And then I think that was, you know, that was back in 2018, just before I discovered uh, the No Sleep podcast, which, which you'll have intimate knowledge of. And I was just really gripped by how... Um, supportive the community were as well and I think that really helped foster my interest in the genre um, and I learned a lot about the genre from those people too I learned about all the different subgenres, you know slasher and um, uh, splatterpunk and you know all the, the millions of subgenres of horror that there are body horror etc and and then I think that all it all cemented for me when I stumbled across well 
I first stumbled across the Black Tapes, which is a kind of long form audio drama um, about a series of mysterious videotapes that all hold different supernatural mysteries, very much like the X-Files, just in audio form. And they recommended a show called No Sleep, which was an anthologized show of horror stories based on the, the stories that were being posted to the No Sleep subreddit at the time. Um, and I heard that they were open for submissions and, and I submitted a story and that was kind of my platform and my launching point for me becoming, I guess, an established horror writer in that sense. And, and I just, I loved what they did with my story. I was hooked with the possibilities of horror. Um, there are perhaps certain writing conventions with science fiction and fantasy that don't exist in the horror genre, um, which I find quite freeing. Um, and this, with, with crime as well, I, I, I love crime fiction, but I find you have to be insanely uh, logical and a very good planner, which I'm not. <laughs> um, and so horror just lends itself to my style of writing. I find very well, I can be very, uh, spontaneous with it I can play with different styles and and the Once Yellow House is a very good example of kind of me playing with that epistolary style fiction but also it allowed me to deep dive kind of local lore and um, get a bit weird with it and I think other genres are perhaps I'd, I'd like to try writing other genres and I definitely will but I find horror is my natural home because it just allows me to be myself I think quite exclusively um, and it also allows you to explore a lot of very dark and very human themes. And I think horror in particular is is a study of the human condition, um, perhaps more than a lot of other genres are. So I'd be interested to know, um, I guess I'll explain a little bit, doing some self-analysis as you're, as you're speaking. Um, I have this strange belief that there is just nothing left to be discovered. And that might be... <laughs> Some, somewhat of the reason why I write horror and come up with these strange ideas. Um, I, I know you're a traveler. I've, I've kind of seen uh, posts of, uh, you know, across the social media platforms. You mentioned India. I think you've been in Southeast Asia as well. I, I yeah, I've pretty much been all over. Um, I've been, I've been quite fortunate in, in being able to travel um, quite extensively. Yeah. So is there do you think any element of that and trying to sort of stake a claim to um, some undiscovered territory? Well, it's interesting you say that you feel that there's not much left to be discovered in the week where they have literally identified ripples in space and time. It's which... a fear. I, I don't know if it's, it's legitimate, <laughs> but it's, you know. I, no, I I'm... know, and I get, I get that because I often feel the same. I often, particularly when you're writing a book, I feel like everything is now derivative. There are no new original ideas. There's nothing new and scary. It's just everything is a new take on something that's already been done. And I'm okay with that because I, I feel like tropes are there to have fun with anyway. But there is this kind of thing in the back of my mind where I know that we don't understand everything about the universe and about the world yet. I know there are undiscoverable things out there. Like I, I watched a documentary yesterday about a cave in Mexico, which um, I think has been newly labelled or about to be the deepest cave in the world. And it has a network of tunnels underneath it that stretch for, you know, kilometres and kilometres. And that's like, imagine what shit's down there that we don't know about yet in terms of biodiversity or perhaps there's nothing or the geology of it that we don't understand yet. And all of those discoveries that we are yet to have really appeal to me. And I think 
tying in with your question, I think a large part of why I love to travel is because for me personally, not for mankind, <laughs> but for me personally, there's a lot of stuff out there that I just know nothing about or I don't I've never heard of or I've never encountered. And what tends to happen is when you travel, you find these things that you knew nothing about, whether they're animals that you didn't know existed or customs in countries that you you didn't you know I was I was lucky enough to travel to uh, Mongolia as part of kind of a big round the world trip that I did I took a train from China to Mongolia and I signed up to an initiative where you traveled around the plains and you stayed with different local families it was called Ger to Ger because the the Gers are what we call yurts I guess that's that's the word for their homes and as part of doing that, I learned a lot about their social customs. You, you do a bit of an intro session into kind of social customs and, and norms. And one of the things I learned is that when you um, shake hands, it may, may be different now, but back then we were taught that when you shake hands in uh, kind of traditional Mongolian society, you have to make sure that your wrists are exposed so that you can prove you have no weapons up your sleeves. So little things like that, little details like that, I'd never even thought about um, happen to you so many hundreds of times over when you travel and if you travel extensively. And I think I love to feed those things into my fiction as much as possible. Um, A, because those things that you discovered delight me a lot when I and I love to think back on them and be because I think it just makes incredible fodder for like stories and storytelling and um, and interestingly one of the uh, one of the books I'm just finishing up at the moment is a collection of short stories for Cemetery Gates Media based around places I've traveled to so they're kind of travel themed horror um, and I hope to be able to continue to travel and to continue to find things that I knew nothing about that never existed before in my head. And then to work some of that wonder into, into my, my books. And, and I think we all go on that journey a little bit when we write a book and we start researching about the thing that we're writing about and you suddenly find out all this stuff you never knew, um, which, which really happened with the Once Yellow House. I did a lot of research about various bits which feeds into your comment about the footnotes in the book which we can come back to but I learned so much shit researching that book um, and it, it feels like kind of a privilege as a writer to be able to do that I think I don't know if that answered your question I rambled a bit then but it did and it's a perfect <laughs> time to pivot to the once yellow house um, you mentioned uh, tropes and I think this isn't an attempt necessarily to break out of a trope um, but as far as you know, doing something new, um, this is a great example of doing something new. Of course, there are um, you know novels, books out there, stories surrounding cults, um, but you took it in um, some really interesting directions, some sort of cosmic directions, and then you also how you framed it, making it more epistolary. Um, the as, as I said in my review, it was an experience because, you know, turning the page, say ending a chapter, I didn't know what was going to be waiting for me on the, on the next page. Is it, Good. you know, a portion <laughs> of an article? I, like I love the letters to the editor talking about these, um, this, the retinue, these people moving into their space and how there was just some 
kind of back and forth about how to interpret them. And um, so it's just, uh, it, it is refreshing. And, and that's kind of the point I was trying to get to in my review and that you read books that good, bad, whatever, they're kind of formulaic. There's the beginning, middle, end. Um, sure. We understand the beats, but with the Once Yellow House, they're kind of, it's a, uh, it's, the beats are there. They're not as, um, as apparent. So I'm yeah. going to pivot to you and ask mm -hmm. if you can give us your synopsis, your pitch for this book. Sure. Um, just before I do, I think in answer to what you said about it being kind of not going through the classic beats that perhaps you find in many books in traditional publishing. And th this is no shade on traditional publishing at all, because I've worked with some traditional publishers and they are the editors that, that kind of work for those places are wonderful and they know they know what sells as well. But what I would say is being able to work with an indie press is extremely liberating in terms of Cemetery Gates in particular, kind of just let me do my own thing. Um, and it meant that structurally you can mess around with things from perspectives, um, styles. You have a lot more freedom with an indie press than perhaps you might with a traditional publisher um, who, who at the end of the day, the traditional guys, they do have a series of marketing boxes that need ticking off. Indies are less perhaps motivated by that. Um, and I think it makes a book better, really, if, if you can let it be what it wants to be. And this book very much just went off on its own journey. But if I was to give a synopsis of The Once Yellow House for anybody who hasn't read it yet, it is the story of a couple um, called Hope and Thomas Gloucester. Um, they're a married couple and they aren't having the best time in their marriage, um, noticeably because Thomas spends an awful lot of time on his mobile phone. Um, what Hope doesn't realise is that behind the scenes, Thomas is very slowly building a cult following around his quite strange end of world belief system, um, which is a kind of amalgamation of all different various belief systems and religious ideologies from around the world. And he's kind of mashed them all together into this weird um, manifesto of beliefs centering around this end of world event. Um, simultaneously, he's been eyeing up a property to move to, to isolate himself and hope from kind of the city living that they've got. And the reason he wants to do that is because he wants to build a kind of physical cult around himself and he wants the space in which to do it. So he buys a very run down old fixer upper um, on the edge of a, for anyone that's read any of my other books, on the edge of the Sunshire Chateau estate, um, in case you've read Six Rooms and you're interested in crossovers. Um, and there's something very strange about the house. The house has got a particularly odd energy uh, which readers of White Pines might recognise. And um, it all culminates in an accident where Thomas is injured. And this is a catalyst for him, I guess, transforming from what he thinks is a kind of cult leader figure into an actual new god. Um, and the cult kind of follow him. And it's very much about Hope's journey through dealing with a husband who is becoming a god <laughs> physically, um, metaphorically and physically, and then dealing with the retinue who are the cult that grew up around him and the day-to-day -day kind of challenges that she faces. Um, and it's it's told very much from the perspective of 
different bits of media that are all pieced together to give you this overall picture eventually. And a large part of that is in a, a series of recordings that take place between Hope and an ex-member of the cult who survived kind of the events that transpired. And they're just kind of talking to each other and going over things as they remember it and piecing together bits in each other's memories that are missing. So, yeah, I think that's a, a very lengthy but fairly accurate synopsis of the book. <laughs> and a perfect segue into the next question. As you um, said, this is more the bulk of the book, I guess, like if you were to count the percentage of pages, most of it is told in a conversational um, format um, between these two women. And I have done a few epistolary stories myself. And so I'm curious to know, like as a writer, you have this uh, need, I wouldn't say need, it's just something, I guess it's um, ingrained. It's, it's just part of who you are to write a certain way but most people don't speak that way conversationally. Most people speak, um, you know, we're not necessarily um, using all five senses when we're communicating. So was that something you found um, difficult to work in saying, well, this person, you know, hope wouldn't actually describe this to this extent um, in a conversation. So was it, was it difficult or I guess what I'm trying to say is it was it freeing or was it a challenge? I think that that the answer to that is there are several parts to that. I think the first thing to say is having um, experience as you have with um, the No Sleep podcast. I'm very familiar with the epistolary format and in particular the whole kind of interview recorded dialogue thing has been used a lot with audio drama fiction um, to great effect. Um, and other shows like The White Vault and The Black Tapes have a very kind of similar feel and I I think I wanted to recreate that in book form. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't necessarily a difficult thing for me to start writing in that way because I've I'm a huge fan of books that are, I guess, puzzles that the reader has to kind of slowly piece together. And I think one of the ways in which you can do that is you can play around with the formatting and with the um, the different styles of writing and the different formats. And you with an epistolary book, much like other books that I kind of fed off that were um, The Ship of Theseus is one, which was um, uh, written as J.J. Abrams in collaboration with another author. And that's like four or five different books all rolled into one. Um, and the Raw Shark texts is another one that I talk about constantly. Um, I believe that's Stephen Hall. And that's a lot of um, like textual wordplay and snippets of diary entries. And uh, I think I've been always very drawn to puzzles in fiction, um, whether it's audio fiction or in printed format. So it wasn't, no, it wasn't difficult for me to write the dialogue um, and maybe that's me leaning into my kind of audio drama scripting skills a lot as well and I'm also moving more into screenplays and writing realistic dialogue is a skill that I'm slowly hopefully learning and it's very very different to when you write straightforward prose and you sort of smatter it with dialogue because as you point out you can with a more um linear novel that isn't a pistory you can have a character talking to another character and then if if the writer so wishes you can also see inside their head and you know what that person's thinking when they're talking but with a series of interview transcripts you don't know any of those things you have to piece it together as you go along and 
I wanted to introduce some element of, I guess, unreliability in, as regards all of the different narrators in this book, because there are several. Um, and though Hope is the main character, but there are different viewpoints represented throughout the book, and you're never quite sure which one of them to believe. And I think that's the power of epistolary fiction is the unreliable narrator. And, and particularly when Hope was talking um, to, you know, the survivor once Yellow Kate, um, you're never quite sure who is holding what back and, you know, who is leaning into the truth or who is kind of only half remembering something. And I actually really enjoyed writing that and I really enjoyed leaning into that dynamic. And actually, I think if I'd had longer to write the book, I probably would have done much, much more with that. Um, so the rhythm, the rhythm took me a while to get used to in terms of splicing it up with other forms of epistory storytelling within this book. So it's sort of the, the audio transcripts are interspersed with like diary entries straight from Hope's kind of own experience and then a few newspaper articles and various other bits like web articles and things like that. In terms of keeping track of that and who said what when and the timestamps and all the rest of it, that was a pain in the ass because I had to go back over a printed manuscript and and make sure I had timestamps correctly. And then I had to kind of read through the conversation in my head and make sure that the the time, um, the length of recording sort of correlated with what the conversation actually was. And I wanted it to be as realistic as possible. Um, and that that was hard work. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then on top of that, there were also, as you kind of mentioned earlier there are an awful lot of footnotes in this book where I came across something during my research and I was like that has to go in the story but I wanted it to be footnoted because you also have the additional perspective of the the fictional editor of this book who um, Joe from Cemetery Gates Media was quite happy to kind of impersonate which I really liked um, and yeah you've got to try and work that in to various different parts of the transcripts and all of the different forms of, of writing um, in a way that isn't overbearing. And footnotes are great fun for that um, because you, you you can go down to them, you can return to them, come back later. So it was hard keeping track of everything. I would say it's the most one of the most technically challenging books I've written. That being said, I'm not very good at writing a book with just a straightforward beginning, middle and an end. I never have been and there's a, there's a bit of a running joke at No Sleep with this too. There's, there's, I can't write a short story, anything uh, smaller than 10,000 words, <laughs> which is very true. And I can't write anything that's linear. Um, and, and Dear Laura very much hopped between two different timelines. Six Rooms is told from the perspective of multiple characters um, and from the point of view of six different rooms in a haunted house. And uh, White Pines hops around from dimension to dimension and different there's like a 10 year time zone gap and so I don't I think fragmented styles of writing perhaps suit my brain and I struggle and probably get a little bit bored if I'm honest with like here's a beginning middle and end um, although I am writing one at the moment which is more along those lines. But yeah, that's a very rambling answer to your question. It was difficult and it also wasn't because it feels natural to me to, to have written those characters in that way, um, if that answers your question. <laughs> and you kind of led uh, well into the next question and you were talking about 
um, some of the other pieces and works you've written. Writing as a form of self self exploration, excuse me. So this is a pretty um, varied experience. There's definitely some relationship stuff happening, um, which I felt it 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 the maximum intensity in the first half of the book to me was that relationship dynamic um, really made an unlikable uh, husband character um, really rooted against him. Um, and then it kind of goes off into some other directions, some cosmic, some, um, you know, I'm rambling here, but I wanted to ask what unknowns were you exploring with this work? I think it's a book of two parts in that it's a book of unknowns that I was exploring, definitely. But it's also, as with most of the stuff that I write, very much a book of knowns as well. Um, I normally draw on personal experiences. I'm not saying I was ever inaugurated into a weird yellow cult, but I have had experience of um, the type of personality. Um, you were talking about Thomas being very unlikable. Well, if you think about the majority of people that want to go on and create a, a cult-like environment and want to build a following around themselves and position themselves in some sort of godly role, on the surface of it, they are very likable and very charming, but they're not likable people because mm. I, I don't think very many honest, straightforward, likable people want to um, instill a certain belief system that they don't even believe in themselves um, for the purpose of, of money or some other nefarious means, which we, you know, we, we know all the rhetoric surrounding cults and I'm fascinated by it. Mm -hmm. um, but in real life, I've also met people with, um, personality dispositions along those lines where it would be really feasible for them to be sat on their phone trying to create some kind of weird Facebook group and get everybody to to follow their way of thinking above above everything else and and I think if you are a perpetually online person as an author which you kind of have to be a little bit these days you are exposed to all sorts of things I mean you only have to look at I guess what's happening with Elon Musk and Twitter and without getting into that too much he's he's a very similar personality in some respects to Thomas in the Once Yellow House in, in terms of how much he's sort of believes in the, he's, you know, the convictions he has in his own actions and motivations. So um, in terms of the unknowns, I very much wanted to lean wildly into the cosmic this time. I've done that in many books before. Um, the prevailing uh, world, I guess, that I'm building with a lot of my books, and, and if you're unfamiliar with my work, you'll figure out eventually that most of my books, with the exception of Dear Laura, all tie into each other. It's all part of a big shared universe. Um, even the universe that I've sort of started writing, the Cemetery Gates kind of segues into my own. And it's, it's the foundation of that is that reality in various places around our world and beyond is thinner in, in cer certain locations. And the possibilities that allows you to play play with are, are in, phenomenal. And actually, one of the things I had to sort of do with this book is it, I, I posed the question to myself, what would a, an actual God look like? You know, what does that look like? Because if you think of all the different 
spiritual characters there are across various different denominations of religions all over the world and we're talking um hinduism and you know islam and and variety of all these different religions and saints and gods and spirits and they're also wildly different but also familiar there are familiar elements throughout most mythologies and most spiritual beliefs um and i really wanted to play with that and it's something that i've never leaned into before uh perhaps because I'm, I don't come from a religious background myself, but I've always been fascinated by belief systems and structures. And I had to kind of almost try and create a bit of a blank canvas in my mind for what, and get rid of any preconceived notions of what I thought, like, a, a you know, imagine if you were, you had an accident and your brain opened up at the back of your head and it was a portal to other realities and dimensions and through that portal some kind of deity and being inhabited you what would that actually look like um and it it was an opportunity for me to just go really fucking weird with it and I'm still not sure I went entirely as strange as I would like to have gone um my benchmark for anything like that is the the Ian Banks novel that uh is the the whole novel where he writes his own depiction of hell um, on a kind of alien planet and if you haven't read that book and I can't remember what it's called but I'll, I'll find it out so you can pop it in the show notes it's the most wild dark gruesome awful thing <laughs> it stayed in my mind for for decades after I read that book and it's absolutely brilliant um, so I think that's what what I would say was a challenge in in writing the unknown because those are unknown entities. And then I tried wherever possible to uh, kind of interweave that with very known entities like um, difficult relationships between women. Um, and sometimes, particularly with women, there's a, a huge element of distrust when you first meet that, that slowly you unpack. Um, and I'm generalizing a little bit from some of my own experiences, but I have found that to be the case before. Um, again, the, the complex relationship that you have with someone that you've been with for a very, very long amount of time. Um, I also wanted to write about how abuse can be quite subtle sometimes. Um, abuse can be uh, isolating your spouse from her friends. Um, abuse can be putting your spouse down or not believing her when she says something or you know there's various different forms of quite subtle abuse that I really wanted to lean into in this book um, and I think abuse is also key for me when it comes to talking about cults and how people are inaugurated into them and what happens to them when they become part of these kind of families they're sort of pitched as families it's a bit like when you get a job at a massive company and they talk about this is this is not a job it's a family and it's like well no it isn't it's a it's a business machine or there's some ulterior motive to you being here so yeah I hope that answers the, the question why is with cosmic horror why isn't why isn't it ever anything nice that comes through I guess it wouldn't be horror <laughs> then but um, as you were talking um, it reminded me of something that I probably underlined it. I'm having difficulty now finding it um, that Thomas did where he would, he saved all of his adoration and kind words when there was nobody else around. It was like, um, mm -hmm. you know, that we talk about praise in public, chastise in, in private. And for him, it was um, the reverse. 
that's actually a very key part of Thomas's, uh, I guess, character complex, though, in that he needs an audience all the time. He's a very different person when he has an audience to who he is privately at home with no one to witness him. And even when he's injured and he's lying in bed and he's transforming, he has an audience because the cult kind of move in and he has a rotating bevy of kind of people watching him and adoring him as he goes through all these changes. So, yeah, it made sense to me in my head that he would be a certain way in public with Hope and then be yeah. very differently with her privately. That, that was so fun. I, I know I've mentioned it earlier, just you said you went for it and it was, it was such a fun read. I'm sure it was it was fun to write as well, just how extreme and strange and, and all that um, as far as the, the cosmic elements. So I'm not familiar with that book. Um, whenever you remember what it's called, I'll, I will add that to the show notes. I will. I'll find, I have it somewhere. It's, um, I'll Google it after this and let you know. You need to read it. It is wild book and Banks was a very Banks's brain was a very dark place I think so all right we're about the halfway point of the interview which is where we do the ad read seeing mm -hmm. if Gemma is ready it's a tongue twister it is let me uh, put this over here right okay are you going to count me in or uh take it away Gemma Dog-eared Nightmares would like to thank its latest sponsor, William Gilliam's Aluminium Emporium. The speed of life is intimidating, deadlines just over the horizon, obligations stealing your attention. So many times I head out the door just to grab some aluminium and find by the time I've returned, I've brought home everything but. Of course, I can jog down to the corner store, but if you're buying aluminium at the corner store, you might as well recycle it on the way home because that's all it's good for. At William Gilliam's Aluminium Emporium, shopping is a delight, not a chore. Aisles and aisles of sparkling aluminium, all organic. No effluvium with this aluminium. You might expect to pay top dollar for aluminium of this quality, and you'd be right. This isn't Gillian Fillion's discount aluminium. William Gilliam stands by his aluminium. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. No worries. Uh, Sorry, little, I, I cocked up in the middle. <laughs> a little background on that. So the first time I met Gemma was at AuthorCon uh, a few months ago at this point. And I don't know, at some point, drinking at the bar, uh, I thought, oh, I bet no American has ever asked her to, to say this word before. <laughs> I come to find, find out I was about the third, maybe third or fourth person just on this trip alone. Yeah, it's a regular occurrence when I go to the States. I, I'm, I'm generally requested to say al aluminium at least four or five times within an hour um, and various other things, uh, which is fine. <laughs> at least Buy me at, a drink, I'll say anything. <laughs> at, at StokerCon, there were other Brits that we could harass to, to yeah, say it. It wasn't just me. The focus, you had Scottish people as well at StokerCon, so the focus was completely off me. <laughs> Did they say it different? Um. I, they say it with Scottish brogue, so okay. I, I think you get added polish. Okay, so um, there are a couple of lines I've under, underlined. Um, and they don't, won't necessarily make sense out of context, but um, we were just talking about exploring unknowns. I wanted to know how much, uh, I guess, truth or what your idea was when you wrote this. Is this something that you are exploring within yourself. So I'll start, I'm actually gonna go in order here. So on our show notes, I start on page 64. 
I'm going to start with the one that's on page 55 or 56, actually, which is space holds on to energy. I fir firmly believe that. And the energy here is hungry for something. So what are your thoughts on space holding on to energy? Mm. So I would say that's something that I definitely believe um, and from personal experience. And, and I don't mean I don't think I mean it in a kind of supernatural way I think sometimes when you go to a place that you that is imbued with history a certain type of history you go into it knowing what's happened you bring with you all of your own feelings and thoughts about that and it's an energy and the best way I can use to describe this is I, um, I've been lucky enough to to travel um, I think we sort of chatted about before and uh about 10 years ago I sort of quit my job and traveled around the world and I spent a large amount of time in Asia um, I went to Vietnam and I ended up um, in Cambodia at one point and I try wherever possible to go to kind of sites of historical import whether they're kind of good or bad and in Cambodia you you obviously have the there are lots of um leftover scenes of crimes from the the, the regime of the Khmer Rouge um, and the, the genocide that happened and the killing fields is a very well-known site that I visited um and it's it's a I don't know what it's like now so I'll caveat this by saying I have no idea how well preserved the site is now but when I went it was in 2010 and the killing fields is a large expanse of land where many innocent people were brutally slaughtered and their, their remains were just kind of left and dumped and including you know women children the vulnerable it's a horrible place not least because there are many physical remains when i were there that were still kind of sticking out of the ground um i do remember at one point looking down at my my feet really overwhelmed and there was a a large molar tooth just kind of lying next to my big toe um, and I get it, it's a, it's a huge site to, to kind of work through and categorize from a forensic perspective, if nothing else, but it was horrific. Uh, and as a treat to myself afterwards, I then went to this, the, the kind of, um, it's called Twelve Slang, I believe, and it's, uh, it was a school and it was turned into a prison um, for kind of prisoners of war and I think of that any time I think of the, the expression that space holds on to energy, because there was one room in particular that I walked into. There wasn't much left in it. It was just a concrete room with a, a rusting iron bed frame in the middle and a large brown rusty blood stain patch on the floor. And it was such an unbearable room to be in. I just couldn't stand it. I just couldn't stand it. Um, I had to get out and I felt claustrophobic and I felt sick to my stomach and heavy and desperately sad um, and, I, and I think that's what I mean when, when space holds on to energy when you know that something either good or bad or something momentous has happened in a space you go into there with all of that in the back of your mind and it creates a very different experience and a very different atmosphere to if you have no knowledge of what's happened in a particular place so in the context of without kind of it's, it's very difficult for me to move on to my own book after kind of talking about that without trivializing that memory. But I think what I wanted to talk about was 
um, in, with the once yellow house, the idea that that things had happened there before, that perhaps the the new residents, Hope and Thomas, maybe they'd heard some of these rumours and they didn't even realise it. You know, maybe there was a local law, or maybe there were rumours. There were certainly rumours about the neighbouring property, the Sunshire Chateau. Maybe they had subconsciously absorbed some of that and taken that with them. And then obviously the book takes that a whole degree further by there being actual energy there and, and the energy comes from kind of one of these thinner spaces in reality that pop up all over my universes. But I really do believe that. I've been to a number of of sites now that I would quite cheerfully never go to ever again in my entire life where I have felt that energy. So, yeah. Okay, go with me on a bit of a journey now. But there is a, I don't know if it's a, a more recent sort of perspective, but I've just been hearing about it more lately that we perceive time as linear, but there is the perspective of t all time is happening all the time. So we can only perceive time moving one direction, but in theory, that's it's just another plane. It's another dimension. It can move in multiple mm -hmm. directions. So I'm wondering if you can sense in some way the like you said, maybe this isn't supernatural. If it, if, if it is just a matter of maybe not having access to that perception as we are, that it's mm -hmm. still reaching some aspect of you that you can be in the space where something so brutal and horrible happened. And mm. if all, all time is happening all the time, maybe you're sensing that to an extent. I'm not sure whether it's a time related thing, perhaps so much as more the human brain tries in whatever way possible to make sense of things they don't really understand. Um, which after all is like, I, I guess time or theories around time is, a, is an example of where that intersects with actual physics as well, where they try and constantly to prove these things that we're, we're coming up with. Um, but I think when you are witness to something so horrific, you can't quite wrap your brain around it. It's very natural for then people to go on and come up with methodologies for kind of ascribing some reason to that. Um, and, and again, that ties in with the whole premise of the Once Yellow House, which is, in essence, a kind of a group of different people trying to piece together what happened in a horrific massacre. Um, and, and as a kind of cultural event, it has such a huge significance that people, you know, conspiracy theories and rumor mills and gossip and all of that stuff. It's, it's all just the human psyche trying to make sense of something that doesn't make any sense to them at all. Um, that being said, I think time in particular is a really interesting way that the brain attempts to process things. I think deja vu is something that uh, has been kind of mythologized as, you know, is, is it evidence of this, that or the other? And nobody really 100% knows. But I, something I've definitely felt that I'd love to explore a lot more is, is deja vu our brain's way of trying to alert us to something that feels similar to when something else happened? Or have we, you know, because I do often have very strong moments of deja vu where I'm convinced bloody hell, I've had this conversation before, or I've experienced this smell or this moment, or I've chopped carrots like this in this precise way before. Now, I know I haven't, because I'm not a time traveller, and I don't have multiple like, entities living different strands of life, but there's a reason my brain feels like that at that moment in time, beyond the fact that I'm probably just really fucking tired, <laughs> overwhelmed, and I'd love to explore that more, 
because there are other ways in which our brain and time kind of um, clash up against each other, you know, things, uh, amnesia um, or temporary amnesia, you know, the complete loss of time. Um, it, it's fascinating to me. It's absolutely fascinating to me. There's a, there's a series of books that I speak about a lot. Um, they are um, the diary entries of Oliver Sacks, who was a, um, a, is or was a professional, I believe, uh, psychologist who specialised in human relationships with our bodies. So a lot of his patients had issues to do with mobility and, and proprioception. So phantom limb syndrome or looking at your wife and seeing a banana instead of your wife. But also there were a lot of instances where people had random um, attacks of amnesia or displacement or and it's really really interesting the levels that our brains will go to to like I said before make sense of something perhaps because they're sick or there's been an injury or trauma um, which is a big one you know PTSD all these things are so intertwined with our notions of time. I think that's fascinating. And there's a question that fascinates me as well, because I always see time, particularly when you're mentally unwell, as something you can kind of fold up, you know? Like I, I used to have a timeline and then I got postnatal depression and I took medication and now there are big gaps in my memory. And it's like somebody's taken like a soft ribbon and like folded it up into little loops and things. Um, yeah, that's that was a very off the off the beaten path kind of thought process. But I'm fascinated by time. I always have been. Not time travel. I find time travel narratives tedious as fuck. <laughs> I just can't get into them at all. But I love the this idea of like our day to day and how that's affected by whatever goes on in our lives. I'm interested to see if there's any overlap in what you just discussed with this next line, which um, just somewhat touching on the deja vu. So your next line I've highlighted is, there are no coincidences, only interlocking truths. Yeah, that's very much the same thing, right? There's people put a lot of stock into coincidence. Um, and essentially coincidence is just a series of things that have actually happened, all happening um, in conjunction with each other. So they are not really a coincidence. They're just a succession of truthful things that are all interacting, um, which, Again, I know that's a very prosaic and uh, boring way of looking at it, but I actually think that's quite powerful. You know, these these coincidences that that people talk about almost as if they're this sort of uncontrollable thing. Well, actually, no, it's, it's a series of events that you can influence, and you can control. And I like that because that gives you more power over your own life, I think. Um, you know, it's not a coincidence if you continually date the same sort of person. That's a conscious choice. It's, um, you know, that's that's the sort of thing I mean. I think there are a series of kind of jigsaw puzzle teeth that all slot together and they're all based on the decisions we make and the actions we take and the events that happen around us. And there are interlocking truths. And I find that a very appealing notion um, as well as quite a strong mental image for me. Moving on a bit of a small, uh, a smaller package here, um, but you say a lot in it. So the next line is see with the soul. Yeah, I can't take credit for that. Um, I 
as part of my research for this book, I went to, well, I went to Amsterdam for another reason, but while I was there, I popped into the, the wonderful um, museum dedicated to Van Gogh, um, where much of the stuff from the book came from. And opposite that was a glorious modern art museum. And it was displaying a wide variety of work. And that is a quote from one of the artists who I believe is referenced in the footnotes. Um, one of the female artists who was, I believe she worked with kind of geometrical patterns um, and certain range of colors. And um, I forget her name, it's a Dutch name, but she's, she's mentioned in the footnotes of that. And I think that was a quote directly from her that really struck me and just sort of stayed with me is particularly as an artist and probably as a visual artist as well. This idea that what you see and how you recreate that with your own works of art, you kind of see with your soul. So it's like that gut feeling that you feel when you you think of how to to present something. Um, and that comes out with paintings in terms of art and composition and form and structure and shades and all the rest of it. And as a writer, it comes out in different ways, like tone of voice and perspective. And um, yeah, and I was really taken by that quote. I, I was really grabbed by that. I guess it's interesting um, just hearing you talk about it and the origins I had a different perspective reading it, um, but I'm gonna hang on to mine. Maybe I'll tell you about it afterwards because okay. this is about you. <laughs> um, as you said, uh, this was a, a complicated novel to write. That's uh, evidenced by the footnotes, which I've also mentioned, um, took me on a journey. I was Googling and, and went on a Wikipedia, multiple Wikipedia rabbit holes. So good, so did I. <laughs> First, can you talk about your writing process in general? That would be the standard question is, are you a plotter or a pantser? And then can you talk about your yeah. process for this novel? Well, I think it's probably evident to anybody now who's followed me for any length of time that I'm not a plotter. Um, I would say probably the recurring criticism of my works in general is that A, they're not long enough, and B, that they, they do tend to sometimes suffer structurally. Um, that, that becomes less of an issue as you move more into the traditional space where the editing process is very um, geared towards fixing plot holes and structural issues. Um, that being said, I don't also believe often in explaining every single tiny detail or lingering on scenes or fillers or any of that stuff. I'm quite an intuitive writer. Um, I also have this thing where I think I said before, if I know what's going to happen, I get very bored and lose interest in it. I suspect that's the wildly undiagnosed ADHD side of my brain that just gets, I have a very low boredom threshold, basically. So it needs, a book needs to interest me for me to finish it, which is becoming increasingly difficult <laughs> as I go through them. But um, that probably also means it won't come as a surprise to anyone to understand that my writing process is quite chaotic. Um, I, I very, very rarely ever sit down and write a book start, middle, finish. I, it just never happens. The way I've described it before and the easiest way to describe it for me is like I consider writing a book and I treat writing a book like a, it's a succession of scenes and images and snippets and quotes of dialogue and things as they come to me random points in the day or on a walk or in the shower and then what I have to do is yes I will often start at the beginning and then maybe I'll jump to the end because I have an idea of where I want it to go and then everything in between it's a lot like stringing a load of beads onto a, a thread to make a necklace 
and I'll string them all and I'll, I'll be kind of happy with the overall look and then I'll take them off and I'll move them around and then I'll add more beads and different colours and eventually I will have a necklace that looks pretty and that I'm happy with. But the way I get there is rather chaotic um, because I do consider a novel to be a big collection of lots of moving parts. Um, and then also you have these annoying things that happen where you think, oh, that would be a really cool detail to work in. But I can't just work it into this part of the novel. It has to be a narrative thread that goes throughout the entire thing. Otherwise, it isn't a convincing addition to the story. So then you have to go back and rework. Um, I do a lot of editing as I go and obsessive re-editing. Um, I am a very, uh, I'm quite a fast writer, like it, it, an average day writing for me would probably be from a thousand to five thousand words, which I know is quite a lot. Um, I've had days where I've been, I, I also have manic windows, um, again, probably because of all the brain stuff going on with me. I've had a few days in the past where I've written upwards of 10,000 words in a day. They don't happen very often. When they do, I'm obviously not very well. Um, so a lot of my writing process is also balancing my mental health and making sure that I'm, I'm actually being sensible and treating it, you know, people are always like, wow, you're so prolific and you write so much and it's, you know, all these books. And I'm like, well, yes, that's because I'm not, I'm not all there upstairs. <laughs> it's not really a gift. It's a kind of a curse and a gift. Um, once I have a first draft down in some form, like the, the bulk of a book, I'll then print it out and then I will slavishly work through it with a red pen with my edits, normally in a coffee shop somewhere. And then I'll go back and I'll attempt to work through those edits and I normally get bored at some point and then go off and do something else. Um, and at that point, I'll have a major existential crisis. <laughs> then I'll send the manuscript to a trusted beta reader um, and they will give it the, a good once over and reassure me that it isn't actually dog shit. And then they'll normally come back with some incredibly insightful opinions. Um, an example that I use is when I was writing um, Full Immersion, which came out last year with Angry Robot. I, I got to that point where I was convinced it was rubbish and I'd looked at it too much. And I, I put out a call on Twitter and I, I sort of mentioned this in another podcast interview. I just said, if any of my mutuals want to have a look at this and tell me if it's bad. And actually, Glenn Mazzara replied, um, who was one of the producers on The Walking Dead and he's got you know huge TV credentials and he was able to look at it from the point of view of somebody that's written a lot of screenplays very successful ones and he took that book he read it he fed it back he he called me he was like yep yeah, it's really good but here are the main issues with it and he was dead right he was absolutely right and as a result I went away I reworked huge chunks of it and it was a vastly improved book as a result of that so beta readers are a very important part of my process um, and now more increasingly, as I move into the traditional space, those drafts then where once I would have considered them finished and perhaps hit published myself or sent them to the, the indie publisher, they then go through several rounds of edits from your agent, from your editor, from a line edit perspective until you are thoroughly sick of the whole thing. But it does make a much better book. <laughs> so that's my very messy process. I'm very chaotic. I'm quite intuitive. I tend to just write until I stop. I let the words sort of do what they want. Um, and I definitely don't plan as much as I should.
And for this one in particular, you, I think you said this took you about six months to write, which I was actually surprised it was that quick just because of the mm. amount of additional, like we talked about several times, footnotes. Um, yeah. It feels like um, I could see how maybe writing the narrative part of it, the interviews and such would have been a quicker process, but all the extra little um, additions you made. I was, I, mm. I was, I was, as I was reading it, it was some, I realized I could not have done it myself. I think books are funny though, because I mean, Full Immersion took me years to write. Um, Dear Laura took me two weeks. And it, it just depends on the story. It depends on the book. Um, I wrote six rooms, I believe in perhaps eight months. Um, White Pines took me a year. It, it, it depends very much on Planning would probably help me with this a lot, actually. It would probably make me a much faster writer. But what, what often happens is sometimes I don't know where a book is going and I need to let it sit and sort of percolate. And then I'll have an idea and then I'll know and I'll be away. Other times, um, so The Folly, which is coming out from Polis Books in December, I wrote that in uh, about three weeks. Um, most of it I wrote in... Esther's Park, actually, just before StokerCon last year, when I was hanging out with the No Sleep Gang, um, and and I was very jet lagged, and I woke up at four a.m. before anybody else was awake, and I just wrote, and it just came out of me. So, some books are like pulling teeth, and some books are just they just flow. But also, I mean, bear in mind that I, I this is my job now, so I do this day in day out. Um, I'm not trying to kind of squeeze it around a full time job. Um, I do sort of juggle childcare and things like that, but I'm very, I have a very supportive husband who also helps me with that. So I am able to have the luxury of a full working day, five days a week in normal circumstances on these things, which is probably why it feels like I'm quite a quick writer too, when perhaps I'm not. <laughs> so I'm, because I'm not, you know, doing as many things as, as my peers are. Moving into the rapid fire section, you just kind of touched on this, but, um, so maybe this is advice you've gotten, maybe something you've developed yourself over time. What writing advice do you have for people who are doubting their talent? Stop listening to that voice in your head that says you're shit. Um, put it into a little box, come back to it later and use all of that energy on just writing. Um, imposter syndrome in particular is something that you experience at any stage of this journey. And I've, I've heard multiple interviews from Oscar-winning actors and Pulitzer Prize-winning novelists and musicians who have won all the awards. I think I don't think imposter syndrome ever goes away. I feel like it's an ingrained part in our shared and collective psyche. Um, if you're struggling with confidence, um, my best advice, well, there's a couple of things you can do. Number one is just ignore yourself because <laughs> you you want an objective person you can't be trusted so just don't listen to anything nasty that you think about yourself because it's normally bollocks um number two lean on like i do with my books lean on a few trusted friends and i mean trusted friends who can be relied upon to perhaps read your work and give you constructive feedback i would say it tends to it helps you more if those people are also writers themselves perhaps not Auntie Florence, who is coming at it from a very different perspective. Um, 
because I've been in situations where the critique I've had from people who aren't writers has been rather brutal and hasn't really helped me at all, even though it's good advice, the way in which it's delivered isn't isn't done with you in mind so much. But other writer friends can be invaluable. Again, trusted friends, particularly if you're sending manuscripts out, you need to know you can trust that person. Um, but their feedback and their encouragement and their advice can be monumentally helpful. Um, as can immersing yourself in the kind of horror writing community. There is a very healthy online community um, and in person now as events are, are kind of more of a thing. Um, Twitter is highly problematic, but also a very big source of support for me. There are Facebook groups, there are podcast Facebook groups, there are um, local chapters of things like the Horror Writers Association, you know, I'm talking about our genre in particular, but it, it's kind of truism for, for most most creatives is you find your people. Um, and when the more you kind of immerse yourself in that world and support each other and hold each other up, the more those insistent nasty little voices go away um, as well. And in terms of talent, like don't think of yourself in terms of like, I doubt my talent. Don't think of yourself as talented or otherwise. If you want to write, just write. Literally reduce it down to the simplest thing you can possibly do. Stop overthinking. You don't have to write. Then You don't have to be the next Cormac McCarthy. And taste is subjective. And talent is a word that you can apply to a wide variety of things. Stop thinking about that. If you want to write and if you feel like you've got a story to tell and if you're having fun doing it, just focus on that. Because the second you start you start losing in this game the second you start comparing yourself to other people. Um, comparisons are the death of creativity in my head. Um, and I've been there myself, I've done it myself, I've, I've gotten stuck um, in, a, in, a, in horrible loops of lack of self-belief and I still do. And I have to remember that my journey is my journey and the reason I write books is for no other reason than because I love to write and it makes me feel alive and that's why I do it. And if you keep coming back to that truth, eventually you reprogram your brain to be nicer to yourself um, because the, the insistent little voices of doubt that you aren't a very big talent kind of go away because they don't matter because they get in the way of writing. So writing is the fun thing. Should writers read their reviews? <laughs> Everyone says no. I, I personally stay away from them, but I also don't when I've got a new book out. I like to check the first perhaps 10, 20 reviews, see that a book's kind of doing all right, and then I don't really ever go back. Um, I would suggest that it's not a great way to spend your time. You'd be better off spending that time working on the next book. Uh, I'm not your mother, however, and I can't insist that you don't look at your own reviews because I know you're going to. Um, but I would say that if you do go looking, you have to prepare yourself for both the good, the bad and the ugly. And I've had some real doozies. Um, and in the early days, yeah, they got to me a little bit. But now it's like it's just it's part of the job. There are, people are entitled to their opinions and you as a writer are putting your work out in the public domain. So you need to be OK with the idea that somebody's going to review it as regards the experience they had and it would be weird if every single person had the same five star experience with your book um so yeah i mean read them if you want to but i'm not sure it's the best use of your time <laughs> how many works in progress are you juggling oh my goodness uh so many les um 
I am a I am I'm probably the most chaotic person that you'll ever meet and and I, I'm not very I don't display a lot of it publicly but behind the scenes I'm I'm awful um I would say that I'm working on five if not six novels concurrently at the moment um and a screenplay and a pitch deck for a tv show and uh editing an anthology as well for titan books um and a few oh and some covers and a pitch and <laughs> it's just it's awful <laughs> anyone looking at my to-do list would have the most amount of anxiety ever <laughs> but it's just how my brain works I, I have to multitask um I actually work better when I'm working on multiple things all at once um and it, again it's something I've learned about myself through well mostly through my son's ADHD I've realized that my son focuses better on something, schoolwork or whatever it is he's doing, if he's also doing something else at the same time. That's literally how ADHD works. It's a surplus of attention. It's not an attention deficit at all. It's too much attention all the time on everything all at once. And um, I very much struggle with that. And the only way I manage it is I juggle billions of things all at once, um, sometimes not very well. So how far along is the furthest along novel and how not far along is the most recent novel? Those, I've got stats here. Let's have a look. I know you uh, post your word counts. I do. Well, I have to keep track of it so that I can, I feel like I'm making some linear progress. Um, so I have got one book that I'm 11,000 words into, one that I'm 92,000 words into, one is at 45,000, another is at 11.8, and the one that I've just been working on today is at 42,360 words. And I think there's another one lurking somewhere, uh, but I think I've hidden that for now because I've realized that I'm being an idiot. <laughs> so I'm just gonna focus on the ones I've got on my spreadsheet. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I know it's insane. What makes a good no sleep story? Ooh, oh, that's one of my favorite things. Um, if I was to think of some of my favorite stories on, on particularly the no sleep podcast, I'm assuming rather mm -hmm. than the subreddit, yes. the, whist the Whistlers for me is peak storytelling. The Whistlers is epistolary um, diary entries. There are two parts, although the no sleep podcast has only told it from one character perspective. And it, it documents the journey of a couple of scientists through a kind of big, open, vast wilderness as they are being slowly pursued by these creatures called the Whistlers. Um, and it's this kind of post-apocalyptic landscape. It's got everything that I think a perfect story needs. It's got wilderness. It's got kind of hard um circumstances and conditions it's got spooky monsters that might not actually be monsters um unreliable narrators it's got everything that you need in a story and if you haven't heard it go to the no sleep podcast website and type in the whistlers it's one of the season finale specials it's about two hours long i've listened to it multiple times um it's also one of brandon boone's best soundtracks i think for that particular episode that he's ever written it is so haunting and so the story is just so melancholy. It's not 
outright in your face horror. It's just slow, creeping, melancholic terror, I guess, of the unknown. Um, and I think if we're talking about no sleep stories in particular, the thing that they hinge on and where their success lies for me is taking ordinary people and putting them in slightly extraordinary situations and the mundane and the everyday turns into something unpredictable and horrifying and there are so many stories that that stick in my mind man and uh, man and lysette wrote one about a, a girl who uh, a man discovers a girl and she's tied up in a woodshed and he thinks he's setting her free he breaks her manacles he thinks he's letting her free and she floats off into the sky. And the reason she's there is because her father has tethered her to the earth so that she doesn't float off into the atmosphere and die. Um, you know, there's another one where a little boy plays hide and seek in a fridge and, you know, you can see what happens. And there's just so many situations where it's just a, a normal everyday circumstance and it's just turned on its head. And I think that makes a perfect horror story for me. Um, yeah, everyday people in extraordinary situations. What is your favorite adaptation they've done of your stories? Of my stories? Um, I would have to say Foliage is definitely up there for me. That was my first big long story that they did. Uh, I'm very attached to that story. That was kind of my tribute to uh, Jeff Vandermeer and Annihilation. Um, and they did a stunning job with that. Um, I mean, the production quality with every single one of my stories has been insane. Um, Caleb is another sort of, I'm very fond of Caleb. Um, that is a kind of post a World War II sort of supernatural drama, really, um, that they did a wonderful job with. Uh, my Christmas specials I've always really enjoyed as well. I make a big effort to write a kind of weird Christmas special. I wrote one called It Sees You When You're Sleeping, which was like my take on Christmas if Christmas was Predator. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I can't, it's hard to choose a favourite. I think Foliage is the one that people quote the most. They did also produce uh, a six-part special of Dear Laura, which was... Uh, which I rewrote the scripts for and that was an incredible privilege and I, I felt very fortunate to have had that opportunity. Um, yeah, um, also The Path Through Lower Fell is one that I really enjoy. That's the one about cows that eat people and the sound effects for that were just bonkers good. They really were. And Black Sand is also another favourite of mine um, about a, 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 um, a, an ex-soldier actually who's kind of on... She's, she's on some sort of rest recuperation holiday that gets interrupted by this weird beach and this annoying stranger. And um, again, the sound effects for that were awesome. So yeah, I've, I've loved everything they've done, but my, my longest stories are perhaps the ones that I'm most fond of. The, the not good thing about that is they're often on the pay side, which means the audience isn't quite as yes. substantial there. Yeah, and that's up to me because I used to be able to write a 5,000 word story and these days I just, everything wants to be a freaking novel. <laughs> it doesn't work in audio. So I need to relearn, I need to reteach myself the art of the short story. Um, but I did have one out uh, last week or the week before that was a, a long one. It was based on an Ed, Edgar Allan Poe story called Manuscript in a Bottle. And that was about 40 minutes long and that was in the free episode. And, and I enjoyed that a lot, actually. I thought that was really well done too. So you've announced quite a few things on Twitter. You mentioned one of them. Uh, actually, I think both you might have touched on that I'm aware of. So there's the folly if you want to give us details on that. And then the anthology you're editing 
So what's coming up for you? So the three main things coming up for me that, that are announced and that are out there in the world. Um, the first one is The Folly. It is a novella that is coming out from Polis Books in December. This December, pre-orders are now live. Um, if you go to any of my social media profiles, you'll find it fairly quick um, or you can Google it. And it is my attempt at sort of, uh, it's, it's a love letter to Daphne du Maurier. It is a, a family drama slash thriller set on the Cornish coastline. And it's about an ex-convict who is acquitted of his wife's murder. And he and his adult daughter decide that they need a new lease of life after he's released from prison. So they move to a kind of decorative folly tower on a cliff overlooking the ocean in Cornwall during the pandemic. And it's a very isolated location. And their job is to kind of look after the building. Um, and in the course of kind of living in these circumstances, lots of things come back to haunt them, um, particularly in relation to the, the kind of main character's conviction and his presumed guilt or innocence. So it, it very much, leans into my love of Daphne du Maurier and her short stories. Um, and then after that, I have a collection of travel horror stories coming out with Cemetery Gates Media next year. Um, I'm really excited about that. I, like I said, I've traveled extensively. I've been incredibly lucky. I know I sound like a wanker every time I say that. Um, <laughs> and a lot of people roll their eyes at me. Brandon always rolls his eyes at me when I say, oh, I've been there. But I genuinely have been fortunate enough to travel to these places. And I thought, well, why not use them in my short stories? Um, I should hasten to add in a way, hopefully, that doesn't appropriate any cultures. It's more it tends to be stories told from the perspective of a visitor or a traveller, because I'm very wary of, you know, in the past, I've been very ignorant to that. Um, but it's just when you're in a different country, different experiences, they're just things fire off in your imagination. So I'm excited about those stories. And then finally, I have just announced um, that I'm editing an anthology for Titan Books, who uh, are pretty much, you know, head of the game at the moment, I think, when it comes to horror. Um, you know, they publish Hayley Piper, Eric LaRocca, anyone you can think of, you know, the UK editions particularly. And they're an amazing team. They're an amazing publisher to work with so far. Um, and that will be an anthology of stories that are kind of leaning into what I call ancestral horror um, or stories with roots. And it's the book is therefore called Roots of My Fears. Um, and it's the, the, the theme is stories that perhaps your grandma has told you or stories from your family history or from your culture or from where you grew up um stories about identity and location or or lack of identity um and I, I just think it's such a rich and ripe theme for different voices to kind of come out um and and yeah i'll, I'll be very honest i'm, I'm hoping that it is is a, a, a diverse anthology as diverse as i can make it within the constraints of you know marketing and sales teams and i'm very excited about it and i do have a, a table of contents in place so i'm just sorting out contracts now but I do also plan on opening up one slot for submissions open submissions because I would very much like to feature a kind of new voice um if I had my way I'd probably have way more slots than one but I have quite stringent budgetary constraints so look out for that because I will be doing an open sub call for that one too 
um, at some point in the future. And that's coming out 2025. So you've got a while. <laughs> Gemma, I'll work for free if you get me on that time. <laughs> I'm not going to do that game. Okay. <laughs> I've already had three people message me this today on Instagram. Go, so Gemma. Really? That, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a good, fair, open submission process where I'm hoping to get some really cool stories in. Um, I may regret it. I may, my emails might collapse. Who knows? <laughs> we'll see. I might have to set up a brand new email account just for that. But I'm excited about it. Yeah. Our closing question What is your dog eared book, literal or figurative, the book that you come back to more than any other and why? I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, it's a toss up for me between uh, Vandermeer's Annihilation, the first in the, the trilogy. I'm insanely excited that he's writing the fourth book at the moment because I picked up Annihilation when I, again, was on, I was on a trip with my family to France, I think, and I was, we were in a hostel and it was a book on a, in hostels they have bookshelves full of books you can just swap, right? and. And I didn't have anything to read and I picked it off the shelf and I think I sniffed it up in about a day and a half. I just couldn't put it down. Just the voice, the premise, the, the fucking weirdness of it, the beautiful way that he writes, just the eco horror aspects of it, the environmental stuff, all of it. Just interestingly, I know he's not a big fan of the Netflix movie, which I adore. Um, I can also watch that over and over and over and over again and never get bored of it. They're very, they're very different, but they're both brilliant in my mind um and then the other book that I continually come back to well there's two there's Death on the Nile by Agatha Christie which I think is a perfect crime novel and actually a perfect novel in very many ways um complex characters brilliant kind of whodunit beautiful exotic settings um I was lucky enough to to visit the hotel at the cataract in uh, on the Nile where she wrote large chunks of it um and i've experienced that kind of environment and it's you know it's incredibly evocative um and then it's rebecca by daphne du maurier uh and and i said this to somebody who's reading it at the moment it, I, it is the perfect book for me that that novel is astonishing on all fronts just the themes that are written about, the, the, again, the complex array of different motivations, the unreliable narrator, just, I know I talk about that a lot, but I find that quite compelling in fiction, whether or not you can trust what you're reading. Um, it, there's so much going on in that novel and it's just note perfect. Every page is compelling and beautiful. And it's it's like a piece of like polished sea glass, that book, it's, it's fucking brilliant. And I read it so much. That's the perfect description of a book like polished sea glass. It is. You, when you read it, you'll know. But I think, again, it's that Cornish seaside element to it. Um, you, it makes sense when you read it. <laughs> well, thank you, Gemma, for coming on to Dog-Eared Nightmares, uh, the Once Yellow House released from Cemetery Gates Media earlier this year. And you've got a lot of other stuff coming out to look forward to. Thank you very much for having me. And um, for anyone that doesn't know, we had loads of technical issues with this and Les has been incredibly patient and kind throughout. So I do appreciate it a lot. You're welcome. Thank you again to Gemma Amore for coming onto the show. 
I realize now in retrospect, there's one element of this book that we did not talk about. So I think I might have mentioned that I had uh, a full color copy of The Once Yellow House. There are several illustrations throughout the book that uh, Gemma did. So I did mention that she is an illustrator. And um, so in addition to all of the footnotes, all of the research that went into this, there are also illustrations throughout the book, um, as well as the front cover. That was all done by Gemma. So a bit, very talented. I uh, can't wait for the next thing. If you're in a reading rut, if you just want something that's a little less linear, then read The Once Yellow House. I did. It broke me out of my rut. All right. Next up is our latest installment of MJ's Corner. Thanks again, Jim. Welcome back to MJ's Corner. I'm here with my daughter, MJ. Hi, my name's MJ. Today, we are going to be reviewing a book titled... Garlic and the Witch. Who is this book by? It is written and illustrated by Bree Paulson. What is this story about? It is about a little garlic bulb who visits a witch because she's growing into a human. And what else happens in the story? She turns into a human and figures out her way to another magical village. Why do you recommend this book? I recommend this book because it teaches a lot of lessons, lessons about our bodies changing. And what age do you think this book is appropriate for? Four and up to teach them about their bodies. And finally, we've uh, agreed on a rating system of garlic bread. So five um, would be an entire loaf of garlic bread, and then uh, you would cut it up from there. So five is the maximum number of pieces of garlic bread you can get. So MJ, how many pieces of garlic bread would you give Garlic and the Witch? I would give this a whole loaf. Thank you, MJ. This has been MJ's Corner.